He says, this son of man wins. This son of man, unlike the first Adam, triumphs. The first man, his authority was usurped in the garden. A beast of the field took charge. And that led to the fall, but not so in Daniel 7. This son of Adam wins. He is the victor over the beasts of the field. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part two in our six-part series with Pastor Paul Twiss, What's in a Name? Pastor Paul's text continues in the seventh chapter of the Old Testament book of Daniel, verses 1 through 14. This is one of Daniel's visions given him while in Babylonian captivity, and several figures emerge, but only two capture our attention. First, the Ancient of Days, seated on a throne of great power and glory. This great figure then grants dominion and glory to a second figure, the Son of Man, who appears in the clouds to receive his kingdom. Here's part two of What's in a Name? The use of sons of men there in Genesis 11 sets a course for the rest of the Old Testament, wherein we understand that that phrase, Son of Man, Sons of men speaks of the fallenness of mankind. Son of man or sons of men speaks of the fallenness of mankind. They are wicked creatures. They are depraved. They are lost and hopeless and in need of a savior. Not only that, but the use of sons of men or son of man invokes the fallenness of creation. Not just the fallenness of mankind, but that phrase invokes the fallenness of creation. Again, don't forget, Adam means taken from the earth. And don't forget that when Adam sinned, he pulled down not only the entire human race, but the entire universe, galaxies, stars and planets and solar systems became broken when Adam sinned. So the son of man terminology taps into the reality of the fall in its entirety. The fallenness of mankind, yes, and the fallenness of the created order. If we were to ask the question, who is this son of man prior to Daniel 7, the answer would be he is Genesis 3, in the flesh. He represents everything that is fallen. And with this background, it is with some surprise that we turn to Daniel chapter 7 and we see another son of man. We see another son of man, but he is unlike all the rest. The storyline takes a turn at Daniel chapter 7. Unlike all previous sons of men, this one does not fail. 
Unlike all previous sons of men, this one is not weak. He is not sick. He is not rebellious. He is not wicked. He is not hopeless, but he is victorious. This son of man is triumphant and glorious. There is a shift in the Son of Man narrative when we get to Daniel chapter 7. What is the point of this abrupt change? We'll look closely at the text. Did you notice how the vision is reported in verse 2, beginning with four winds stirring up the great sea? Maybe I could paraphrase and say the vision begins with winds moving over the water. Did you notice how in verse 3, four earthly human kings are being reported as beasts? Beasts of the field, you might say, who rise up out of the created order. It is interesting to note how Daniel begins the vision with a wind over the waters and with earthly human kings being pictured as beasts rising up out of the created order. What Daniel is doing is that he's establishing for us a particular lens through which we can view this vision. Think back to Genesis 1. Think back to Genesis 1 when the Spirit was hovering over the water. Think back to when beasts of the field were created and they were rising up out of the created order. The same concepts are in play here, and it's no accident. Daniel is establishing for us a creation backdrop to this vision with winds and beasts, now, why is this important? You have to keep thinking through that same paradigm. After Genesis 2, we get Genesis 3. What happens in Genesis 3? At the most fundamental level, there is a beast of the field, namely the serpent, who usurps, overturns man's authority. He grasps at an authority which does not rightly belong to him. And it is that act that then precipitates the fall. And what we see here as we read through Daniel 7 is four beasts of the field rising up to grasp an authority which does not rightly belong to them. It's as if in a very intentional way, Daniel is telling us the vision. He is replaying for us the events of Genesis 1 through 3. Now, it is true that this vision does speak to a particular definite time in history. It is true that these beasts represent the kingdoms of Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome. But in the way that Daniel communicates those historical facts, he's making a much broader theological point. He says, this son of man wins. This son of man, unlike the first Adam, triumphs. The first man, his authority was usurped in the garden. A beast of the field took charge. 
And that led to the fall, but not so in Daniel 7. This son of Adam wins. He is the victor over the beasts of the field. He is successful where the first Adam failed. And so when you get to the Gospels and Jesus uses son of man, especially in very lowly, earthly contexts, he is referring to his humanity, but in a very specific way, in a very profound way. He is declaring himself to be the second Adam. Unlike all other sons of men, this one will win. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. John speaks about the Son of Man in terms of flesh and blood. He did come as a man, but not any old man. He came as a second Adam to reverse the effects of the fall. And in so doing, he redeems lost sinners and he restores the created order. The Son of Man eats with tax collectors and sinners. The scribes and the Pharisees were outraged that he would do such a thing. But we should say, of course, that's what he's doing, because he's the Son of Man come to restore sinful sons of men to a point of redemption and to redeem creation. He restores creation to its Edenic glory so that when he comes again, the stars will shine and the heavens will sing as they never have sung before. It is well said, the Son of God became the Son of Man in order that the sons of men might become sons of God. That sums up this first point. Why is it important to understand? Well, if there is any aspect of Jesus's person that we struggle to understand, it is his humanity. We tend to default towards his deity. We maybe don't treasure enough the doctrine that he came in human flesh. Without his humanity, we don't have the gospel. The gospel doesn't work unless Jesus came in the footsteps of the sons of men. He had to enter into the human race in order to fix that which was broken. And because it was a man who caused the entire cosmos to come crashing down, it had to be a man who would fix it. When your car breaks down, you have an engine problem. The engine is stopping the whole car from working. You don't go and get new wheels for the car. That's not going to fix it. You don't go and put in a new radiator or a new transmission. The only thing that will fix the problem is a new engine. The entire universe is broken. And it was the cause of a man. And so a son of man had to come to fix it. Genesis 3 demands a second Adam, one who would walk in the steps of the first but who would succeed where the first Adam failed. And that is this son of man. When Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, I am that son of man. 
I am the Daniel 7 son of man, the second Adam. He is presenting you with an opportunity to enter into a new humanity, a new race, a redeemed people who will very soon be living in a redeemed creation. This should change the way you think about people. I have the privilege of ministering on the CSUN campus. There are 40,000 undergraduates on that campus. That is huge. I grew up in a town with 25,000 people. There are 40,000 students there. Most of them have no idea what they believe. So we go out and we evangelize. We'll just walk around the campus and just interact with students. Just interact with them and talk to them about Jesus Christ and their thoughts of the church and religion and communicate the gospel. And it's a really interesting exercise from a personal perspective because you find all kinds of emotions stirring up in your heart. All kinds of prejudices that you didn't think you had come to the surface. Because on that campus of 40,000 people, there is every kind of person you can imagine. And you find in the sinfulness of the flesh inclinations towards certain people to have a conversation and share the gospel and strong inclinations to pass others by. And I've learned two things need to be kept in the front of my mind. Two truths have to be kept in the front of my mind to put those prejudices away. The first is to remember that every single person on that campus is a child of Adam. Every single person is a son or a daughter of Adam, sick to the core with a disease called sin. And the other thing to remember is that however that sin may be manifesting itself in their life, and however undesirable you may think they look, there has been made a way, an opportunity for them to enter into a new creation, an opportunity for them to enter into a new humanity. It changes the way in which you interact with people that God has put in your life. Human thought, the history of thought has tended to view the human race at one end of either extreme, either that the human race is the most wretched of all creatures, or the human race is the most glorious of all creatures. And of course, both are true. And it is the Son of Man that provides the key to the tension. By having entered into the wretchedness of humankind and lived a perfect life, he now gives us the opportunity to go into the most glorious of human races, to enter into a new humanity. This is what it means that the Son of Man came. He came as a second Adam to reverse the fall. And so as a result, we are afforded no preference and no prejudice when we interact with a lost world. We have a responsibility to proclaim the Son of Man as one who triumphed where Adam failed. The Son of God became the Son of Man that the sons of men might become sons of God. And as you dwell upon this one truth, the gospel will become all the more precious to you. 
you'll grow in your love for Christ, and you will grow in your love for the lost. You may ask, how did this son of man succeed where all other sons of men had failed? Maybe you're asking, how is it then that this son of man should triumph where all other sons of Adam had failed? And that leads us to ask the question for the second time, who is this son of man? We first saw that he was a second Adam who reverses the fall. As we ask the question a second time, we see that he is God in the flesh who will reign forever. Who is this son of man? He is God in the flesh who will reign forever. Look again at the text with me. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. How is it that this son of man succeeds in such an emphatic way? Well, maybe you've already thought this evening, you know what, we don't really, technically speaking, have a son of man here because the text says we have one like a son of man. And that's a very good observation. That one word in the English text bears a lot of theological weight. It's perhaps doing more work than you might think. The word, translated here from the Aramaic, meaning like, is very similar to the English word like. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that a comparison is being made. A comparison is being made. He is like a son of man, which means there are points of similarity. In many ways, this son of man is like all the sons of men that came before him. And we've already seen one of those ways, and that is that he was a human, a person. That's a point of similarity. But if we think about it, and if we press the issue, it implies that there are also points of dissimilarity. He's not identical to the sons of men. He is like the sons of men. That means there are similarities. But because he's not identical, it must mean that there are also dissimilarities. There are points where he differs. Again, we've already seen one of those, and that is that he triumphs where all the others failed. But another point of dissimilarity explains how. Look at the text. See how this son of man travels with the clouds of heaven. In the ancient Near East, which is the, the cultural realm into which you're stepping when you open the Old Testament, in that world of thought, when anybody traveled on clouds, they were understood to be a god. It's like a mode of transport that is reserved for the gods alone. Not only that, but look at how he comes face to face with the Ancient of Days. Scripture tells us no one has ever seen God and lived. And here we see one coming face to face with the Ancient of Days. And then look at the nature of his reign. He's given dominion, glory, a kingdom, 
all peoples and nations and languages serve him. His dominion is everlasting. It shall not pass away. It's a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. All the characteristics of this reign suggest that it is divine. It is a God-like kingdom. And when you sum it all up, it is reasonable to imply that this son of man is different from his predecessors in so much as he is God. He is God in the flesh, or in creation language, he is the perfect image bearer of God. In a way that this text does not fully explain, in a way that other parts of Scripture explain more fully, what we can affirm here that in some way the Son of Man is both a man, a human, and at the same time, he is God. And so when you move again to the Gospels and Jesus is using Son of Man language, he is often drawing on the divine aspect of this character. In fact, more times than not, when Jesus uses the phrase son of man, he's implying his deity. Now think about that. It's interesting. If I had asked you this evening, before we open this text, what does son of man mean? Maybe you would have said, well, that's where Jesus is referring to his humanity. And it's true. There are times when he is leaning upon his human nature, as we've already seen. But most often, when Jesus employs this phrase, he is implying his deity, directly from Daniel 7. Think about that incident where they lowered the paralytic through the roof. The crowds are gathering round so that they couldn't get to Jesus. They pull back the roof. They lower down the paralytic. And Jesus says two things. He says, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. And the scribes are grumbling. They don't like it. They're saying in their hearts, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, knowing all things, responds to them. And he says, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Go to the other end of the gospel narrative. Think about the trial of Jesus. They say, are you the son of God? So are you the son of God? And he confesses, he says, I am. But then he, he augments the confession. He adds to it. He says, by the way, I'm also the son of man. He says, from now on, you will see the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, seated at the right hand of power. And the scribes and the Pharisees scream in response. They cover their ears and they shout out loud because they hate it. They call out for his death based upon that confession because they know Daniel 7 and they understand exactly what he's doing. He is saying, I am God. And so as we understand that this marks the Son of Man's ministry, we see that it is a claim to ultimate authority, both now and when he comes. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul has reminded us that the term son of man appears throughout the Old Testament. Sons of man are alluded to mostly in a negative light because they were sons of Adam and failed in various ways. But Daniel's vision brings forth a son of man who wins. Through this victorious son of man, we are offered victory over sin and death. 
And it is Jesus who repeatedly refers to himself as Son of Man in the Gospels. It's a title that infuriates the religious rulers of the time, for they knew he was referring to the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. You know, there's always more to hear and to learn on our website, TimelessTruthToday.org. TimelessTruthToday.org. On the homepage, you'll learn more about our purpose in spreading the good news of our glorified Christ. And when you select broadcast, you'll find this program and others to listen to and learn from. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Hope you'll join us tomorrow as we continue in our series with part three of What's in a Name? I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.